What would education look like if instead of asking students to adjust who they are and conform to traditional school constructs, the schools themselves adjusted to meet students and families where they are? Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Pep Talks, podcasts on educational possibilities, produced by the National Coalition of Girls Schools. I'm Olivia Haas, your host. In this episode, I'm joined by the heads of two NCGS member schools, Jody Taveras at Esperanza Academy in Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is located about 40 minutes north of Boston, and Maura Farrell at Sophia Academy in Providence, Rhode Island. Esperanza and Sophia Academies are both middle schools for girls, which were founded within the last 20 years to address academic and social disparities among underserved, low-income families living in their local communities. Both have a central focus on restorative justice practices and a commitment to bridging the opportunity gap for the graduates. They are also schools that believe in the inherent wisdom of each girl, helping to not only support her intellectual growth, but also her emotional growth as she travels her path of self-discovery. So before speaking with today's guests, I've asked NCGS Executive Director Megan Murphy to share a little information about some particularly relevant NCGS resources. Thanks for joining me, Megan. Hey, Olivia, I'm really happy to be with you today, and I'm looking forward to hearing your conversation with Jody and Mara. I think not just because of the timeliness of what you will be discussing, but also because I think it's a great continuation from the last episode of Pep Talks. So for anyone who hasn't heard it yet, I do encourage you to listen to last month's episode on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And along those lines, I also think our listeners might really uh, benefit from reading the most recent posts to our Raising Girls Voices blog. They focus on social justice, anti-racism, and the intersection of gender and race. These posts include why we are seeing Black ad social media accounts calling out our schools for racism, how building diverse school communities is just not enough. It really needs to be about creating spaces and places of belonging as well. And then there's a really powerful post um, talking to the class of 2020 that inspires them to use their voice and collective power to advocate for inclusion. Lastly, I want to quickly mention the Topics of Interest Toolkits available to NCGS member schools on our website. It's in the Member Resource Center of ncgs.org, and our educators can access a wide variety of curated content on topics that are relevant to girls' schools and also on the healthy development um, and education of girls. For example, under the DEI category tab, there's a section called Social Justice, Anti-Racism, and Race Relations. There you'll find some suggested readings and also films and recommended consultants and sample DEI action plans and statements. I think it's a really powerful collection of resources that you've been working on, Olivia, and I think it's one that we're really interested in growing through recommendations from our listeners. So please, everyone, let us know if there are resources that you have found to be particularly helpful in your DEI work, and we'll include them for all of your NCGS colleagues to access. Great. Thanks so much, Megan. That's really super helpful. And I look forward to receiving some of those resources from our schools to add to the topics of interest section. Thanks again. Here's a brief glossary of terms for words you'll be hearing throughout this episode. 
Restorative justice is a set of values that when practiced as a community, creates a transformative paradigm shift in how we relate to one another, learn and grow. Restorative justice reimagines harm not as rules broken, but instead as relationships that need to be repaired. Community cultural wealth, as defined by Dr. Tara J. Yoso, a professor in the Graduate School of Education at the University of California, Riverside, is an array of knowledges, skills, abilities, and contacts possessed and used by communities of color to survive and resist racism and other forms of oppression. Yoso knows that when we shift our lens away from a deficit view of communities of color and consider their experiences in a critical historical light, we can document various forms of capital nurtured through cultural wealth, including aspirational, navigational, social, linguistic, familial, and resistant capital. And cultural competence is the ability to understand, communicate with, and effectively interact with people across cultures. It encompasses being aware of one's own worldview, developing positive attitudes towards cultural differences, gaining knowledge of different cultural practices and worldviews, and developing skills for communication and interaction across cultures. Cultural competence is much more than just having an awareness and being respectful of different cultures and cultural differences. It requires the ability to identify and challenge one's own cultural assumptions, values, and beliefs. Jody Amora, thank you for being with me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So let's start at the beginning. Talk to me a little bit about the foundational roots of Esperanza and Sophia Academies and the communities in which your schools are located. Mora, let's start with you. Olivia, thank you. While Sophia Academy is non-sectarian, we were founded in 2001 by a legendary Sister of Mercy from South Providence, Sister Mary Riley, who will turn 91 in December. And she and her sisters collaborative founded Sophia on bedrock mercy values stemming from a devotion to serving women and children who were not born into privilege. In nearly 20 years, we've expanded those foundational roots from wanting to be a safe space that affirms girls from low-income families to being a school built on a set of guiding principles. And these principles include teaching through a social justice lens, enacting social justice principles in our day-to-day -day interactions, being student-centered and gender responsive, having an intellectually engaging and holistic curriculum, cultivating community leadership and engendering lifelong learning. Thank you, Olivia. Uh, Esperanza, we exist in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and Lawrence is a historic city in Northeast Massachusetts. It has always been an immigrant city and is an immigrant city to this day. It's a low-income city, and one of the things about our founding that is interesting is that our neighboring town, Andover, one of our neighboring towns, um, is a is a upper-middle-class community. And when Esperanza was founded, Lawrence and Andover actually had the biggest wealth discrepancy out of any two neighboring towns in America. And so we are an Episcopal school, and so an Episcopal church, Grace uh, Christ Church in Andover, Mass., and Grace Church in Lawrence came together and said, what can we do for the community of Lawrence? Um, and together with community leaders 
with parents from, from Lawrence, with many folks who are involved in change in the city. They had a, several town hall meetings. And one of the things that derived from those meetings was the need for an all-girls school, independent school. And that is how Esperanza was founded, very much um, rooted in the social justice values of the Episcopal tradition. Um, and we still have a very strong relationship with both Grace Church, which is where the school is housed, um, and Christ Church in Andover. Since your two schools were both founded to address student learning that was not being met at other schools, how does your unique curriculum meet your students where they are? Jody, would you like to start? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I love about the academic program at Esperanza is that our students' interests and identities as girls of color really determine our work. As an independent school, we're free to center their strengths. You know, while we use Common Core and other national standards as guides to ensure our students are building critical skills, especially around reading and writing, we can teach and learn however best serves our students. In particular, many of our kids are incredible at debating, performing, creating metaphors, imagining stories, and questioning the entrenched social structures around us. So we're constantly building a program that allows them to lean into these strengths and use them to develop new ones. And in essence, you know, at Esperanza, the way that we think about it is our academic program is high challenge, high support, and high joy. I love that high challenge, high support, and high joy. That's fabulous. I, I hear a lot of similarities between Esperanza and Sophia. There are numerous ways that we meet our students where they are through our curriculum and through our pedagogy. A couple of unique things that we do that particularly meet the students where they are are in a program we call gender studies, um, which every student completes in the seventh and eighth grades. So seventh graders take a course called Girls Coalition which is discussion and project-based. And over the course of a year, they explore their own identities as they define them and learn how identity is shaped by perceptions, by media, by society, and vice versa. And from there, we'll explore the evolution of feminism and its intersection with other social justice movements and problems. And finally, um, we apply that learning to an external view of the world and the students begin to identify problems in their communities that they may be passionate about working on. And then in eighth grade, um, students take a course called the Justice and Gender Seminar, where identity work continues with a view beyond the individual to the family and the community. And students engage in work around action civics, learning how to advocate for issues by actually doing it. And then as a class, they choose an issue or a problem and they take it on. They study it in depth, which includes interviewing and questioning those who are working on the on the issue in advocacy roles or leadership roles in government. And they develop their own strategies and their own plans for solutions. So the issues emerge from the interests of the students and there's a wide array of things that they want to advocate on. And in a normal year, seminar and social studies culminate in a civil rights trip to Georgia and Alabama, where the eighth graders meet leaders from um, the civil rights movements of the 1960s and visit historic sites. So we're working on connecting our students' passions to the past and to the opportunities that they have for the future. Maura, this is a beautiful segue into what I wanted to talk about next. I shared earlier a brief definition of restorative justice, which on the surface sounds like a relatively simple concept, but in actuality, there are many complex layers to this work. So what does restorative justice look like at both of your schools? 
So we are early in our adoption of restorative justice at Sophia Academy. We started last year when our um, new uh, dean of students went through training in restorative practice. Um, and I was interested in researching restorative justice as a possible approach to to simply to discipline at Sophia because its underlying principles align so well with our social justice mission. The idea that we could replace traditional discipline policies really appealed to me, that we could align our policies with student agency and help them build skill in relationships, embrace trust, be trusted, and have positive experiences of redemption and expression. And you're right, it is deceptively simple and a paradigm shift, as you said earlier, because in this model, everyone has to opt in and there has to be a long-term commitment to change. So after our dean was trained, she and our director of student support began to experiment with the practices with some students, and it was really well received. So this year, we're working with the Youth Restoration Project here in Providence to train all of our faculty and staff in restorative practice concepts and protocols. Uh, later this year, um, Youth Restoration Project will propose an implementation plan for SOFIA based on input that they've received from students, parents, faculty and staff, and our board. Um, I'm keen to try to apply it to student policy first. Our idea is to merge the academic, social-emotional support, and discipline procedures so they're unified and driven by a core purpose to draw forth our students' agency and approach relationships and community as a laboratory that provides a safe place for students to experiment and make mistakes, learn, and repair. Yeah, Maura, I, I love hearing the work that y'all are doing at Sophia Academy. And there's so many parallels. I echo so much of the sentiment and the philosophy that you're talking about, you know, implementing at the school. And even the trajectory in which it has been implemented at the school is really similar to how we um, have experienced it at, at Esperanza. You know, essentially, we had one of our longstanding teachers, our English teacher, who was interested in restorative justice and saw a program at Suffolk University and said, you know, can I get this training? Um, and I said, sure, it sounds awesome. And she did and came back really excited about what it could mean for our school. You know, and I think that for us, we um, we decided to take the approach of jumping right into it. And part of it is because I think for many of the folks at our school um, who really believe in social justice, who really believe in equity, and who really believe in black and brown girl joy and the importance of that, we felt like there was no time to waste and to jump into a new system um, that could honor so many of our girls' strengths, but also provide a space of trust, community building, and healing, I would say. Because I think that for a lot of urban schools and high-need communities, they fall victim to these really dis uh, punitive discipline systems that cause a lot of harm to our kids, what Bettina Love often refers to as, you know, spirit violence. And I think that that is historically true in a lot of communities like ours, um, and our students are the ones that are really facing the repercussions of that. And so we wanted to do something different than a discipline system that you know, really controlled our our girls or silenced them and and um, and caused harm. And so, when our English teacher had this training, she came back and said, "This is what it could look like." And I will say that we weren't necessarily sure what it would look like at the school. We knew what we didn't want to do, and we had a sense of what we wanted to do. And so, for a year, it was messy. 
um, because we essentially were like, we're not going to commit to what we used to do. Um, we're going to commit to restorative justice, but we didn't know exactly what that looked like. And so it was a year of messiness. And I would say that I think that for a lot of our faculty and staff, that was okay because we knew the harm that was not being done. Um, it meant extra work on faculty and staff as we tried to figure out what the new ethos of the school looked like. But what we did last year was in January, uh, I canceled school for three days and I brought in the Suffolk University Center for Restorative Justice to fully train our full faculty and staff. And so we did intensive training from 8.30 to 3.30 of everyone from development to the business office to the, the academic team. And I thought that was really critically important as Maura was saying, you need full buy-in from folks. And at that point, I think what we found was that we did. You know, we had a faculty and staff that was hungry for this change and, you know, the soil was ready for it, so to speak. And so we had that training and we started really thinking about these restorative practices. And, and the practice is really simple, right? It's about centering humanity. It's about challenging your own bias. And it's about doing the extra work um, to make sure that students really, truly feel seen, heard, respected and loved in your school. I think that in essence, at Esperanza, what we talk about really and what we practice is transformative justice, right? And restorative practice is a tool of that. What we're talking about is kind of centering humanity in our work, um, in the way that we look at students and work with students and the way that we develop curriculum and the way that we work with our alumni and think about them. Um, it's just, it's, it's about transformative justice and it's about you know, a sense of liberation through education, particularly because we're working with a community that, um, you know, that systemic oppression, systemic challenges are, they're constantly facing those hurdles. So Maura, Jody really touched upon in his answer there, why restorative practices and social justice are so critical for the students and families being served at Esperanza. I would love to hear from you a little bit, your perspective on that at, at Sophia Academy. And what does the long-term impact hopefully look like for you? Uh, thanks. Yeah, um, Jody, that was an amazing um, testament. Thank you for, for everything that you said. I, I think I couldn't have, I could not have said it better. And I think that um, the only thing I would add is that when we think back to our own experiences in middle school, and I'm, you know, well beyond middle school at this stage of my life, but it's still so vivid in my memory. And the internalization of of identity um, is really what happens at this age. So um, I think, you know, for for um, young adolescents who are in just such an important moment in their intellectual and emotional and social and physical and de development. They, they need affirmation. They need spaces to develop self-awareness. They need autonomy and a sense of their own competence and they need belonging and relationships and to develop and express their own sense of justice and fairness. And we know that peers are so important at this age, but also that adults are powerfully influential in ways we might not immediately see, but it comes to play, you know, maybe weeks, months or years down the road. Um, so I think that, you know, in the short and long term, it is about just having a community of humans who are developing together. And how do you want that to play out? What do you want it to look like? Um, so I think um, I would say that it's a the paradigm shift is moving away from it's part of the move away from the quote unquote factory model of schooling, which is 
based on mass production and efficiency and leaning into relationships. Jody, a unique element of Esperanza's restorative work is music therapy. Can you share a little bit about why you chose to incorporate this into your programming? We love our music therapy program at our school. Um, music, you know, is essential to the experience of many communities of color, but particularly Latinx households. Music plays a really critical role in the experience of most folks' upbringing um, in Latinx households. My upbringing is no exception. And so our music therapist, she is a Latinx woman from Texas. And I always say she is she's brilliant at this work. And I think one of the things that happens is not only clinically does she really understand the work, culturally she really understands the students. And she helps them identify how their family is already using therapy, right? So you know what song mom plays when she's mad at dad. Right. You know what song dad may play if he's feeling lonely. And these are ways that we use music to reflect emotions. That is also what we're seeing through self-regulation, um, emotional expression, developing agency, um, healthy coping mechanism skills and processing trauma. And so I think that it, it falls again under the transformative justice kind of umbrella, because what we're saying is let's identify a norm within the culture to provide this therapeutic program, therapeutic support. It's strength-based because we're saying, we know that this culture loves music. We know that they love storytelling. We know that it's an oral culture. So why can't a therapeutic program be based on that? Johnny just provided a really tangible example of how incorporating music therapy into Esperanza's restorative work is having an impact on students. I'd love for each of you to provide more tangible anecdotes about how you've seen restorative practices impact your students and also your faculty and staff. So as I mentioned, it's early days at Sophia with restorative practice and restorative justice. The most uh, tangible success story is that, so our sixth graders were in uh, regular weekly circles with our Dean of Students and Director of Student Support last year. Um, processing social dynamics that were happening both inside of school and outside of school, some of it happening over social media. And they really internalized these processes so well that they began to ask for circles when the dynamics in their class began to overwhelm them. So they recognized the power of the process and they noticed when they needed it. And then they they would come to Miss April and Miss Rose, we need a circle, we need a circle. Um, and this year we're hearing from their parents who saw the positive change that um, happened after we in introduced the circles last year. So they're now coming forward to share dynamics that they're seeing among the students, which aren't always visible to us, especially right now, because we're in a hybrid situation at Sophia, where we have some students in school and some students not. And so the parents are sort of partnering with us now and saying, our kids need a circle. You know, we're starting to see that buy-in um, that is so important. And so that's, that's the most tangible, um, the tangible success story. I love this question because I think that you sometimes are surprised by the positive ways in which circle impacts students or classes, right? Because it's not prescribed. You don't say we're going to have the circle for this thing, you know, that's ta this tangible result. And one example was that last year we had some turnover in the math department. And there were, there were two folks that had transitioned out of the math class and two teachers in one year. 
And so to talk to the students about transition and to make sure that they were not impacted or at least that we were understanding the impact of the transitions on them, we had a circle practice. Remember with the fifth grade, we sat down with them and we had prompts around transition. And they went around and talked about what it felt like to have a a community member leave abruptly um, or leave after a certain certain amount of time when you built a relationship with them and what that feeling is like, which I think is a really critical thing to talk to kids about in general. And what we saw with the fifth grade was They had these beautiful, honest answers around how it felt. And then they decided by the end of the circle that they wanted to write a song. And this is this was the kind of intersection between um, restorative justice and music therapy. So they wanted to write a song for the math teacher to wish him well and say thank you for being a part of our community. And they did. And they performed the song. They recorded it and they sent it to the math teacher. And again, I think like it's one of those things where like it feels warm and fuzzy, but then if you like unpack like what's happening there for a 10 year old to have such a healthy moment of processing a really complicated emotion and building the tools to deal with this really complicated, you know, relational aspect that will forever be a part of their lives. Transitions will be a part of their lives one way or another. But at a young age, they're learning that they should like check in with themselves when there is a transition. So I could listen to both of you talk about this work all day, but I think I'm going to force us to switch gears a little bit here to talk about the intersection of gender, race, culture, and socioeconomics and how they impact your school communities. Jody, how does community cultural wealth inform Esperanza's programs and pedagogy? I mean, it is our program. Right. And I think we're making the explicit commitment to saying we are not going to separate these things. We can't ignore the intersectionality of identity in the work that we're doing or else we're doing a disservice to both our students and our families. And so, you know, when we talk about cultural capital, again, we try to do the strength based approach into this in our work. And an example of that is navigational capital meaning that your family and you have been able to navigate different cultures with grace and ease. You are great at it. You know, that's not to kind of be in denial about how challenging an independent school education will be in predominantly white spaces, but it is also to say you will be able to navigate many aspects. You have this really amazing skill set of navigation that has been passed down to you from generation to generation. You know, I'll also say if If you come from a culture with a storytelling tradition, then you have experience with memorization and presentation skills. If your culture is highly relational, then you come from a background that values building trust and reliable networks. So part of our job as educators is to say, all right, what are the cultural norms? What are the assets? What are the strengths that each student is bringing to the table? So often in this work, particularly with low-income communities, with girls, women of color, Folks come from it from a deficiency mindset. And what we're trying to do is the complete opposite, not only with these kind of tangible skills that I just named, but also with this idea of love, joy, fun. And I think that the intersectionality of gender and race play a critical part in that because we know that black girl joy is is something that is often a threat. You know, a child, a a young African-American girl who's 10 or 11 and is very vocal, processes really fast, And another identity oftentimes can be said, you know, she's going to be an amazing lawyer or what a congresswoman. And if folks haven't challenged their own implicit bias, they can look at that child as a threat for many reasons. 
And that message is indirectly received by that child, and they may quiet down that skill set that they already have inherently. If you don't look at it from a strength-based place, if you don't look at what is this amazing thing that this child can already do because they come from these beautiful cultures with tons of depth, you're slowly taking that stuff away. And it's, and it's not fair because the child has this inherent brilliance and you may be teaching the child to move away from their culture. And so I always say that like our number one goal is for our girls to graduate from Esperanza comfortable in their own skin. Samora, I know that at Sophia Academy, being gender responsive with an emphasis in cultural competency is among the school's guiding principles. Can you please expand on what this looks like at your school? You know, I think it could be easy for a school like ours to think we're further along than uh, predominantly white schools and being culturally competent. And in some ways we are because we affirm our girls. It's, it's baked in that we affirm our girls. And But at the same time, we are learning all the time. And that's really key that the adults in the community are learning all the time. And I just learned something from Jody because I had never heard the term navigational capital before. And it relates right to an example that, that I'll give you. We used to talk about code switching as something that our students learn at Sophia. And perhaps this was a benign idea even a year or two ago that our students would leave us with the ability to assimilate into other cultures and communities. And it was part of our quote unquote portrait of the Sophia graduate, which we looked at this summer and we had a visceral reaction to those words, code switching, and to the idea that we would in any way, shape or form actively promote or guide our students to put on masks when they enter new communities. And we want students certainly to understand how to interact and communicate with others who are different, to understand and to be understood. We want them to know what it is to enter a professional environment, to engage in civil discourse, to develop relationships. But we want them to maintain their authenticity and see themselves as rightfully belonging as their full selves. So cultural competency and gender responsiveness are dynamic. And what's important for us is to learn, unlearn, and relearn while we're holding on to our core. So I'm going to take that term, navigational capital, and go back to my team and say, let's look at this idea because I, I think we were trying to get at something that gets at the authenticity of our, of our students and we were missing the boat. So, Jody, in previous conversations, I've heard you use the term wraparound education when you talk about supporting students through their educational journey. Can you explain to our listeners what this means at Esperanza? I think that, you know, it's, it touches on a lot of what both Maura and I have been talking about with the restorative justice piece with families, uh, thinking about cultural context, historical context. And, and the, you know, Esperanza, we have this 12-year commitment to our students, so seeing them through high school and college. And, and I think in essence, our students, in order to come to Esperanza, your family has to qualify for free and reduced lunch. And so we are directly, you know, fighting against poverty. You know, I've often said, like, this is not a school in which students will check their culture at the door, nor is it a school where the kids' day begins at 7.30 when they come to school. And there's so many stories and challenges and triumphs connected to that child's success throughout Esperanza and high school and college. And part of our job is to be able to think about, like, what are all the different ways in which we can support a student and family so that we can actually support a child in disrupting or ending generational poverty in their, in their homes? 
And so part of our job, when I think about wraparound education, it's not only supporting the kid in high school as they um, navigate PWIs or supporting the first-generation college student through um, loan literacy so they know what kind of loans they're taking out so that they don't graduate college you know, burdened by massive loan debt. It's also thinking about, like, how can we support the family? You know, we have one parent that we're working with who we're setting up with that first-time homebuyer course. I wish I could do that for all parents, but we're doing it with one parent right now. But all that to say that if we are actually supporting our students, the best way to do it is to think about all those other indicators and factors that are making it really challenging for the families to kind of have upward mobility. I think there are students who will end generational poverty for families. I think that's a lot to put on a child. And I think that as an institution, our job is to kind of broaden our scope a little bit, think about the other kind of tentacles of poverty and try to address them head on. Maura, I know that Sophia Academy has really similar philosophy um, to what Jody just shared, that you're not just supporting your students while they're on your campus and while they are Sophia students. So what does this look like for you? This idea of being a hub where you can provide a comprehensive set of services for families is, is something that we would love to be able to do too, if, if not for resources. But I think part of the reason that we think it would be very powerful is because there's a trust in our community. And I would imagine that it's the same for you, Jody, at Esperanza, that there, the families, we have cousins, sisters, nieces. We have our first daughter of an alum this year. So there's a, there's a family feeling to the school that I think could be built upon to create those kinds of, um, uh, comprehensive programs. Um, we do some unique things for our graduates. Um, one of which is a program that we've uh, partnered with Brown University on, and um, it's for our junior, our graduates who are juniors and seniors in high school. And it's a mentoring program um, where they uh, meet with Brown undergraduates, uh, mostly first generation young women of color. And so they learn what their undergraduate career could look like by having this experience with these young women. They go through some of the college process with them as mentors. And then um, some of them actually get internships as a result of participating in this program. So that's something that that we have been doing for um, quite some time. And this year we started an internship program at SOFIA in partnership with AmeriCorps. Uh, we call it SOFIA Corps. Um, and we, so we have young people in our classrooms as assistants, tutors, and mentors. Um, and they're learning kind of the Sophia way and preparing for their own careers in education or youth development. And we're thrilled that four of the five Sophia core members at Sophia this year are graduates of Sophia Academy. So we feel like it's a legacy. We also work with the College Crusade here in Rhode Island, which is a 30-year-old organization that works with students starting in sixth grade through their senior year of college, providing different types of preparation and counseling. And we have someone on staff who wants to build more graduate support programs beyond that, but that's where we are now. Um, but I think the getting back to the trust issue, what we see is just the informal, right? The, the, the the students coming back to see their teachers and get help with math or um, talk through what it's what kind of transition they're having to high school or college. That's there's a lot to build on there, I guess is what I would say. So as you both follow the trajectory of your graduates, 
how are you defining success? And would you be willing to share an example of a success story? Sure. So we, we know that higher education is the pathway out of poverty for first generation students. So our goal is that our graduates will go on to college. Um, and we did a survey of our alums last year. Uh, 70% said they're in the first generation in their family to go directly from high school to college without a gap. And 70% also said they were pursuing or planning to pursue graduate studies. So that feels like a success story to, to me. And um, we have students who are doing such interesting things, such as one who wants to marry her pursuit of a computer science degree with her passion for creating programs that build up the confidence and self-love among girls of color. She's a sophomore in college now and got a seed grant at her university to pursue this idea. But, you know, ultimately, success for us is that each graduate is following the pathway she chooses to follow and is engaged in the community and is fulfilled in relationships and career. And we hear over and over that Sophia was where our graduates found themselves and understood and embraced their identities and where their passion for science and engineering or social justice or math or writing was ignited. And there are different ways to succeed and different ways that you can have and design your life. And if they are feeling that agency to do that for themselves, then I, I feel like we've succeeded. That's beautiful, Mara. I, you know, I agree wholeheartedly with that piece. Uh, but, you know, we had a student who just recently graduated from college, became part of a biotech startup at an early time. Now that biotech startup is doing amazing and this child is doing amazing and will be able to support the families in really um, healthy ways. And that's a beautiful thing to see. You know, we're lottery based. So I think that the idea of a prescribed kind of success you know, criteria is is challenging for us because students come to us with really a range of experiences and a range of um, potential. And so what success looks like for one student will just be vastly different of what it may look like for another. We have a student who graduated from Holy Cross, went abroad for some time to Peru, had a beautiful experience, came back and decided to work in the city of Lawrence and is working in the mayor's office. You know, that has its own beauty as well. And then I think about a student that we have at a you know, predominantly white elite boarding school in New England who recently had a really complicated kind of race situation happen at, with her roommate. And that child came back to us during one of her breaks and said, here's what happened. I need help navigating this. Like, that's a success story to me because it shows that the school is developing a relationship with students in which they feel, come back, they feel comfortable coming back to have these really hard conversations, but they're also asking for the skills to navigate them and they're not internalizing the implicit messages and explicit messages in those really unfortunate situations in their schools. I think that's a success story as well. And so it all depends on the context of the child and the family. And, you know, think about like a parent and a, a child who this summer mom was going through really just an awful challenging situation through the, through the COVID crisis and mom and child were having a difficult time with their relationship and they had music therapy together. And that was wildly successful. And so for us, again, it's like, I think for kids of color, for girls of color, and I mentioned this before, I think being comfortable in your own skin is critical. And I want them to be successful, and, but I, I want them to be successful in what they deem uh, success for themselves. Thank you both so much for your candor and honesty throughout our conversation. So 
To bring things to a close, what are some things you've learned through your work that you would love to see incorporated into more schools? What do you dream the future of education could look like for girls and specifically for girls of color? You know, a couple of weeks ago, one of our eighth graders sat on a panel at a women's leadership conference with other young women here in Providence, and she was the youngest on the panel. Completely confident, totally unapologetic in her opinions, which she presented with passion, but also just factual support. She had, she had it all down and you could see the joy taking over on her face as she became more and more comfortable in the conversation. And at one point, one of the other panelists, who's a college freshman said to her, wow, you give me hope for the future. And, you know, this eighth grader came to us with a sense of herself. She came to us with a curious nature and critical thinking skills and confidence. But I know we've done right by her because we've respected that and we've made sure she knows that she's seen and she's heard. So that's the ultimate dream for every child um, to have a middle school experience that respects their identity and culture and challenges them in a student-centered curriculum and ignites their thirst to to continue learning and trust them to learn and develop their own credibility. You know, we need this for the future of this country. It's, but three concrete things that we do at Sophia that other schools might learn from. One is we're small. And while that can be problematic sometimes socially, I think our small size combined with the grade levels five through eight is key to creating that powerful experience for each student. Each student is known. Each student is met where they are. Each student is taught by the same teachers for all four years for the most part. So we can, and we can really partner with their families too. Um, the second is experiential learning expeditions like the civil rights trip. And we, we take them to a farm for a week in, um, fifth and sixth grade. We, we climb Mount Monadnock with them. So we, we, get them out of their comfort zones, and they prove to themselves what they can do. Um, Action civics, community advocacy, and seminar, learning science by doing science. Um, So pushing them to engage. And then the third is partnership. We have a very small staff, and uh, we're mighty, but we don't know everything, and we can't do everything. So we've been able to build out our program through partnerships with organizations that bring different strengths and competencies to us. So our health program is delivered by uh, Sojourner House, our music program by the Rhode Island Philharmonic Music School. College Crusade, which I mentioned earlier, supports our guidance counseling. Uh, Center for Resilience doing mindfulness uh, with our students. And we um, partner with the U.S. Taekwondo complex here in um, Cranston, Rhode Island to do our phys ed program. So these partnerships allow us to extend our program to really great levels of enrichment and it's good for the partners too. And again, I think there's so much alignment between our schools. I agree with everything that you just said. I I will add to that. that I think it depends on the schools that we're talking about, right? I think what urban schools and Heine communities need to do might be different than I think, you know, um, some of the more elite, predominantly white independent schools. I think for those schools, the independent schools, I I would hope that folks would start asking the question, whose norms are we practicing and where do they live in this space? So until you start unpacking that, you're not building inclusive communities because there are so many ways that directly and indirectly the dominant culture's norms live in a community. And I think you have to start asking that question. And even before that, I think folks really have to practice courage 
I think school communities, individuals, and as a collective need to have courage in asking ourselves, you know, what are my biases and what are our institutional biases and how do we put in place the systems that are going to help us illuminate our blind spots? There's this thing we say at Esperanza where it's, we want to create the world we wish to see while preparing our students for the world they're going to inherit. And I think that that's, you have to have this dual reality, right? Like if we at Esperanza tell our kids, here, we're going to develop a school system in which you learn how to navigate these schools. In some ways, that's great because they're going to need to learn how to navigate those spaces. But we can't do it at the expense or the, the cost of demonstrating what it should look like. So I would encourage schools, particularly in urban communities, to ask that question. I would love to see schools, particularly those in urban communities, but everywhere, really censor black and brown girl joy in their programs. Maura and Jody, as I anticipated, this has been a really enlightening and fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. I greatly appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Stay current on the latest NCGS offerings, resources, and research by subscribing to the Coalition Connection newsletter found in the news section at ncgs.org. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Girl Schools. Thank you for listening. Pep Talks is produced by the National Coalition of Girl Schools, the leading advocate for girls' schools, connecting and collaborating globally with individuals, schools, and organizations dedicated to educating and empowering girls. <laughs>